Life Audio. Hey, Dr. Bill Sidney with a Gospel Rant. Welcome to God's Love for Loved Queens, that's men and women, who still feel unlovable, unloved, and unlovely in spite the embrace of the king. So in this show, we're going to witness the grand marriage of the king and his bride. Have you ever wondered what ancient marriages really looked like and felt like? Well, I'm going to show you. They're different in one particular way from today's marriages. And you'll see the marriage will say something very profound about the gospel and God's love for you. And maybe more to the point, what God's love for you feels like and should feel like. It's a game changer. Please pass this on to needy Christians who want more of of an experience of the height and width and length and depth of Jesus' love. little secret, that's all of us. Remember scale 0 to 10? We're all on that scale. There are so many Christians I've found in my 30 years of ministry who just don't dare admit it, or they've been told to shut up about it. Just suck it up. I'm guessing that the Holy Spirit brought somebody to mind. You know what to do. Go for it. All right, so this show is wildly important. We will get into it after this short word from our sponsors. We will be right back. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on The Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. Okay, a lot to cover in a short period of time, so I will exclusively be using my own interpretive translation. It's faithful to the text. You can follow along if you would like in your translation, so let's get going. We will have to use your imaginations a little bit. You have to go back in time to put on 2,500-year-old sandals. Our Western weddings are bride-centric. How do I know? Well, Three areas, particularly music, flowers, and the crowd. Music. Music in modern marriages says a lot. When the groom enters the room, the sanctuary, there's only elevator music, honestly. I mean, right? People are chatting away. They're looking around at who's there. The groom and his paltry entourage, you know, they just got to get overlooked. 
And on the other hand, when the bride enters, there's this fanfare. The good stuff starts, right? The, the, you can tell by the music. And you can tell by the flowers. It's a little thing, but I just observe these things. You know, where do they get such tiny flowers for the groom? I mean, really? They call them boutonnieres. I think that's French for embarrassingly small flower. I mean, a tiny little pin is all that's needed to attach them. But each of the bridesmaids have more flowers than the groom and the groomsmen put together. Then the bride enters with an entire ecosystem in her arms and a veritable botanical garden complete with Chihuly glass art rising from the greenery. She needs help carrying it. She hands it off to, to, to one of the bridesmaids. Yeah? Okay, how about the crowd? I mean, let's face it. <laughs> I've done this enough. No one notices the groom and his entire entourage when they enter. Uh, they're just like everybody else. They're dressed nicer, sure. And, of course, they have the, that microscopic molecular sprig of flower on their lapel that kind of identifies them. But, like everybody else, they have to stand there, you know, their hands in their pocket, waiting for the person of real honor, the bride. <laughs> then she arrives. Everybody, the crowd, stands for her, turns and gapes in awe at her beauty and her glory. <laughs> because... In our weddings, nothing competes with the bride. The essence, substance of the Western wedding is the glory attributed to the bride. Yeah? But the ancient Near East weddings are very different, particularly the procession where the groom comes for his bride. The groom procession we've been talking about. Listen to expert G. Christian Weiss. The bridegroom procession was usually made between 11 o'clock and midnight. Flaming torches were held aloft by special bearers, and the procession swept slowly along to the groom's house, where the bride's attendants were waiting to meet them. Great crowds often assembled on the balconies, on the garden walls, and on the flat roofs of the houses on each side. The bridegroom was at the center of the special interest and whispering voices were often heard saying, look, there he is. As they traveled along, women raised their voices in a special shrill cry which expressed joy at the marriages and at other times of family and public rejoicing. As the procession approached the bridegroom's own house, the pace was quickened and the cry was raised with louder voices. He's coming, he's coming. Just prior to his arrival, the bride's maidens-in-waiting came out a short distance with the lamps and candles to meet the procession and to go light up the entrance as the groom's party approached the house. So you see, the glory of the event in the ancient Near East was carried by the groom. The kavod, the glory, the weightiness of the, the affair was dependent upon the glory, the social status, the character, reputation of the groom. In other words... The whole affair was intrinsically glorious to the degree that the groom was a man of glory. So, now back to the Song of Songs, chapter 3, verses 6 to 11. That's the groom procession. Listen to the queen. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like an apocalypse of Yahweh himself? We can see the columns of smoke and even from here, we can smell the kingly array of fine imported incenses and spices. No doubt there is not a single fine imported spice missing. No expense has been spared for this amazing day. Look, can't you see? 
It's the marriage entourage of the great lover king. What a procession. It's led by 60 of the finest of warriors prepared for any enemy, but as glorious as everything else is, it's the royal wedding carriage that catches everyone's eyes. It's made of the best of imported woods from Lebanon. It is richly adorned with precious metals upholstered by the great artists and craftsmen. Come out, daughters of Zion. Come and see the glory of the king. Come and see his crown, which has been given to him on his wedding day. This is the day that his heart has reached the very pinnacle of joy. And notice something here. There's not even a single mention of the queen so far. It's not there. Now, I think all of this is likely from her vantage point, but you understand in her brain, this is so different from the queen, it's, it's all about him for a moment. And listen, this isn't a budget event at all, right? This isn't a Vegas wedding, uh, right? The glorious affair, this glorious affair, is even apocryphal or messianic, right? Pillars of smoke from the wilderness. Uh, back to the Exodus, right? And that's going to take away the breath of the bride. And all witnesses would naturally go, what? Look. So now, let me put this in today's setting, if that was put in a modern context. Picture Blocks and blocks of the entourage coming to the church, police escort in front and back, roadblocks all along the way to keep the wannabes away. It's a public holiday for the event, so people are standing there. Some actually waited for hours just to catch a glimpse of the wedding party. There are bands and open cars filled with dignitaries and confetti and flag waving. And then here comes the groom in a white stretch limousine that extends for an entire block surrounded by secret agents all willing to take a bullet for him, and you're the bride, you're not seeing this because you're waiting in the church. But you're hearing it, and as you begin to hear the sound of the affair coming closer and closer and louder and louder and the roar of the crowd, your heart begins to pound, and then your bridesmaid, they bail out, they leave you to go outside to welcome the king, right? They want to be there, and so they abandon you. And all you hear is more roar, approval. The glory is coming closer and closer. The groomsmen enter one at a time in great fanfare, each looking more glorious than the one before. They're not wearing boutonnieres, I'm telling you. And then there's a silence, a pregnant pause. Trumpets blast, cracking open the skies. Cries go up, all heads turn towards the door. Knees bow, and at last it's him. All eyes are on him, and rightly so, because that's where all of the glory in the room should rest. So here's the question. Are you jealous of all that attention? No. Your heart explodes. Why? Because while everyone else is looking at him, Who is he looking at? You. Yeah? See, that's what stuns you. That's what causes your knees to buckle, your face to be flushed, is that his full attention is pointed directly at you. Everyone else is focused upon him. He's completely focused on you. His eyes are enraptured towards you. So all of the glory in the room that's attributed to him is passed on, funneled, to you. Check out this quote. Uh, 
as a human being, I am finished by others. I have no independent identity apart from the gaze of others. That's Carlene Mandolfo. And at that moment in the wedding, all of the glory that is rightly his is now reflected to you. You feel it, for he bestows it to you by his gaze. And this is so critical. The glory of the event comes to the bride from the eyes of the groom. The more glory afforded to the groom, the more glory that's received by the bride. Today in the West, it's just the opposite. The more glory afforded to the bride, the more glory received by the groom. And all the grooms get it. We don't begrudge the bride the glory We taste it too, but through her eyes. And so at that moment, your identity is sure and sound and whole and lifted up. You know where you stand. Why? Because you're loved by the glorious one. You're held in awe in him, by him, with him, through him. And you don't care in that single moment that everyone's looking at him because you get it from his gaze to you. Are you with me? I've just described salvation. That's what you felt when you came to Christ. That's what you felt when you finally got the gospel. All eyes are on Jesus and his eyes are on you. And that glory is experienced by you. You were raised from shame, from brokenness, from humiliation. You're raised to glory because of his gaze to you. Well, this is a good place as any to take a break. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So here's the place where the so-called literalists get their knickers all bunched up. They would prefer to see the collection as linear for the most part. A leads to B leads to C. So the beginning of the collection is an image of dating, then the wedding, followed by marriage struggles. No, it's better to see the collection as structured poetry with movement four being the hub that the others sort of spiral around. It's ever-present. The marriage, the consummation, these are the important things that reflects all the other movements. It's the heart of the gospel. Remember, though, there is one huge unresolved issue in the poem at this point. You remember what it was? He's the great and righteous king. He's worthy of glory. She is not. (laughs) She's not righteous. She's not virtuous. She is not a virgin. Culturally, she had given away her social worth and glory, or it had been taken away. Women in those times who had been sexually active pre-marriage endured huge public shame. No righteous man would ever marry them. In fact, per Deuteronomy 22, they can be stoned. Their social worth and status was nil. And she knows this. She is sure that the bottom is going to fall out. In just a few moments. And if there was ever a time for the rug to be pulled out, it's now the marriage. Are you tracking the metaphor? She was an adulterer, a metaphor for all of us who are spiritual adulterers, sinners. When God unilaterally marries us to him, gives us our true value, gazes his honor to us. But that makes us very careful in this new relationship. In ancient Hebrew weddings, the culminating event was the consummation. After the blessings, after the second shared cup of wine, right? The new bride and the groom would enter a tent, right? During the public celebration, they would go away and they would enter the chuppah. Then traditionally, the physical consummation would take place in their new room while witnesses waited outside. It was called the yehud. The time of the Yehud was short. Orthodox Judaism rules that it must 
last at least eight minutes, uh, but no more than 10. <laughs> I would love to have been part of that discussion. The purpose was not for the couple to spend the entire evening together, but rather to physically join as couple, right? Become one. And it proved that the bride was still a virgin. And to do that, either the bride or her mother would have sewn the names of the groom and the bride on a cloth, a bedsheet. It could be the same cloth used for the canopy of the chapa during the Erosene, or it could be a different cloth, such as a bedsheet. And then the cloth would be spread on the couple's bed. The bride would, at least hypothetically, bleed onto this cloth during sex as her hymen broke. The best man, or friend of the bridegroom, waited outside the wedding chamber to hear the voice of the bridegroom tell him that the marriage was appropriately consummated, right? There's blood on the sheet. The groom would call out to his best friend, indicating that his bride was a virgin and that the marriage was now legally consummated and that all was well. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad that doesn't happen today. The 10 virgins who were there would also act as witnesses. The special cloth with the virginal blood would be given to the bride's parents for safekeeping because this cloth was the bride's, quote, proof of virginity or her evidence of virginity. And the purpose was first to prevent adultery in Israel and second, to protect a righteous bride from being discarded by an unloving husband, right? Make fake charges that she wasn't a virgin. And the, the parents would just produce the, the sheet, right? Deuteronomy twenty two thirteen and following. So once the marriage had been successfully consummated, blood on the sheet, right? The evidence of virginity was delivered to the bride's parents. Then the real festivities, the drinking and dancing would begin. And that would go on for seven days. Now, well, if there was no blood, this is what she feared. The marriage would be halted. The woman and her entire family would be publicly humiliated and disgraced. Any dowry would be returned, of course. The righteous groom would wash his hand of the matter, send her away, enter into divorce. Right? But on the other hand, if there was blood, they would hold up the sheet and proclaim great blessings upon the union. So then, what do you think she's thinking? As she and her groom enter the wedding meal before they head to the Hapa for the Yehud. Well, let's pick up the story in 401. There's dramatic poetic transition here. In the first portion, right, 3, 6 and following, the entire focus was on the bridegroom, the bridegroom's procession, and there's strikingly little mention, no mention of the bride. The groom seems to get all the glory, but if you recall, she indirectly gets it as he looks at her. Well, our poem now puts words to that look. The form of the poetry is technically called a wasp. We've seen it before. Keep in mind that as he's saying this, she's feeling fear and terror and ambivalence. She's loving it and fearing what's coming next. The wasp is a public worship poem. So picture the groom picking up a glass in the middle of the wedding, festivities, clinking on it with a fork (laughs) or what they did back then. Everyone gets quiet. They make a giant circle around the bride, and then the groom begins to physically adore the bride with his words from head down to her toes or vice versa. It's wonderful, it's intimate, and it is graphic. It is as if she is standing there naked. All right, nobody cares. This isn't titillating. This is what they did. 
So, but he's, he's using his imagination, of course. He's never seen her naked. She is fully dressed. She's wearing a veil. The wasp is, well, you can imagine. In that culture, this was preliminary to lovemaking. The lover is speaking. And remember, this is God speaking to you. He says, Hanak Yafa Reati. <laughs> uh, we've heard that before, right? Oh, how beautiful. Look, you are my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes partially hidden behind your veils are like gentle doves. They move me. Your dark wavy hair is as full and silky as the finest of goat's wool anywhere. Hanak, you're Look at you, beautiful. Look at the mirror. Don't you see? You're spectacular. And she was dressed to the hilt and with probably only her eyes exposed, but that was enough to drive the king crazy. Her eyes are gentle and playful as doves. You know, and perhaps the lover is thinking of a pleasant pastoral evening, looking up at Mount Gilead, watching the herds of goats stream down the natural topography of the mountain. Perhaps he's referring to the thick, wavy, desirable charcoal black hair of the Syriac Palestinian goats. Goat black was a a popular ancient Near East color uh, from the finest of salons. I mean, either way, it's complimentary, which would have been very favorably received by any woman. And here's here's the king again. Your smile is perfect. Your lips thin and provocative. Your makeup accentuates your glorious natural beauty. Your neck is long and elegant, majestic, draped with ornaments and necklaces appropriate only for a queen of your high stature. Your neck reminds me of a great tower, an impenetrable fortress tower. Underline that last part. Adorned with the shields of warriors who failed to conquer it. While in an age of no dentistry to speak of, her teeth were measures of beauty. Hers were white and wonderful, and they were all there. They didn't have a gap. It sounds kind of earthy, but this was quite a compliment. Poetically, the lover adored her teeth. I mean, today, U.S. men, we prefer Botox. You plump up the lips, I guess, I'm told. But back then, the rage was thin lips. Her attractiveness to him is so obvious and public. And perhaps the lady was wearing a multi-layered necklace, right? Um, But he uses the image to express her character in his eyes. The erect and bold carriage of the lady's adorned neck is likened to a commanding tower draped with trophies of war. The implication is that this tower was famous and distinguished for its features, The lady's neck is formidable, inaccessible, and insurmountable, and noble, right? Um, But nobody has conquered it, and we know that's not true. He continues, oh, and your breasts, your breasts are perfect, delicate, like two baby fawns grazing among the lilies, perfect twins. All day and all night, it's my heart's desire to ascend the glorious perfumed hill Oh, the delicate smells of myrrh and incense that surround your breast. Oh, I never, ever want to stop. His imagination and worship penetrates her wedding gown. She was not only attractive, she was wildly attractive to him in all ways. This had to be really well received by her. Ladies, right? This has got to be good stuff. Dove eyes, horse thighs, black wavy, goat hair, (laughs) mountain and hill. What a great poetic image. He's entranced by the perfume she is wearing in the pouch between her breasts. He's turned on. 
The image is no doubt a metonymy using part for the whole. He no doubt wants to be with her, all of her, all day, all night, not just part of her body, her whole body. <laughs> now we reach the pinnacle of the section. Now we can see the heart of the unbelievable love from the great lover king. Well, we're going to stop there. <laughs> a bad place to start, stop, I guess, but you can begin to feel... I think, the, or imagine the queen's internal conflict, right? She's loving what she's hearing and seeing it in his eyes. She might even begin to believe it, but, but she's got that dirty little secret. And it's going to throw the brakes on this roller coaster ride, and she can't stop it. She can't change the past. She's messed up. She's a hot mess. She's in too deep. Maybe you're resonating. Maybe you think that God's going to find you out as well. Well, that's why we created the simple and cluttered gospel. It reflects the gospel. When you say it aloud, you're proclaiming the gospel to that dark, murky, largely unreached people group, your midbrain that's the keeper of the secrets, the shame and the guilt, the fear. So say it aloud and listen to what you're saying. Listen to the words and just let it wash over you. Let it seep in. Be aware of how your midbrain reacts. Is it angry, defensive, ashamed? You know, what's wrong with me that I haven't done anything about this before? You know, put it in your own words. Write it down. That's a clue to where God's power needs to work. And by the way, is working. Here it is. Jesus followers, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple, good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. You know, you can, and I would encourage you to get the Simple Uncluttered Gospel in bookmark form. You can get a whole packet. Go to gospel-app.com or gospelrant.com. And get a pack of them. They're pretty cheap. Put them all around the house, the workplace. Give them to friends and community group. You'll be glad that you did. Thank you for testimonies for those people who are doing this. It does take some time, right? We suggest two times a day for 45 days. It's a gospel presentation to some real stubborn, nasty places in my brain. Okay? Wow. So now we're getting into movement four. We haven't gotten to the consummation, the, the, the time that she has uh, feared for so long. We'll look at that next show. I'm still writing an updated book on the Song of Songs, but I've shifted short term to a book on overlooked and unappreciated uh, women in the Old Testament. There's a lot of them. It is going to be fascinating. It's a must read. These women, they should have their stories told. They are true Jewish heroines, true daughters of the Most High. If you want to know when the book will be published, get on the information list, Bill, at gospel-app.com. And please, I'm begging you to get the word out about particularly Movement 4, these recent podcasts. It should be uh, anybody who's struggling, wondering if God's disappointed in them, if they have dirty little secrets, if they're uh, worried that Jesus is going to be disgusted with them, right? 
And I suspect that you know plenty of people like that. So get it out to them. Email them, call them, put it on your social media. By the way, also follow this podcast. It's very important. That encourages other people. If there are a thousand people who commented on this particular podcast, you'd be surprised how many people would take interest. Right? And and send me comments. I'm going to post the best on my website. Thanks to Life Audio for their platform and support. We'll see you next time. Take heart, child of God. I'm Dr. Lauren DeVille, a practicing naturopathic physician in Tucson, Arizona. In my podcast, Christian Natural Health, my guests and I discuss topics ranging from nutrition, sleep, hormone balancing, and exercise to specific health concerns like hair loss, anxiety, and hypothyroidism. I'll also interweave biblical principles as they apply throughout the podcast because true health is body, mind, and spirit. Listen to Christian Natural Health for free at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcast platform.